Nats Chat is thrilled to partner again with Walters Sports Bar for the 2024 season. Listeners, make sure to walk on over to Walters before and after your visit to Navy Yard. Walters is located across the street from the ballpark. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. He's ready. Looking at the runner at first. Kicks the left to the plate. And Ward belts it high in the air to deep center field. Back goes Sanoa at the warning track. At the wall. And it is caught. Goodbye. For the second day in a row. Bang. Zoom goes James Wood to the right of the 400-foot marker. And landing at the base of the batter's eye screen in center field. It's a two-run shot to tie the game here in the fifth inning. Two games, two homers for James Wood. It's the Nationals two and the Marlins two. And that was on a 78-mile-per-hour breaking ball, the same pitch that he flailed at earlier in the at-bat. And that's a big boy home run here at Roger Dean Chevrolet Stadium. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, February 26, 2024, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is in West Palm Beach, Florida, the site of National Spring Training. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We are coming to you on about a once-per-week basis during spring training as we prepare for what we do during the regular season, which is do a show for the morning after every Nats game day. But, you know, we right now, in doing a show on about a once-per-week basis, end up having topics pile up. And boy, do we have topics for this installment of the podcast, including the learners no longer exploring selling the Nats. Yeah, we have that. We have Steven Strasburg still having not reported to Nats spring training, despite the deadline of February 24th having come and gone. And we have a lot more. Also, we toward the end of the show, we'll play for you a conversation that Tim Schofers had with author Gary Sarnoff about a book that Gary wrote called Team of Destiny, Walter Johnson, Clark Griffith, Bucky Harris, and the 1924 Washington Senators, who, as so many of you know, are perhaps the greatest team in D.C. baseball history. Uh, If you would like to advertise on the podcast, we'd love to have you. You can advertise throughout the season. You can advertise for just specific series or even specific games. Email Tim Shovers at natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Also, we're offering something new for this coming season. Shout outs at the ends of episodes. Consider this the podcast version of Cameo, okay? Uh, You can surprise a relative a partner, a friend, uh, just as you can on the Jumbotron at Nationals Park with a shout out 
on the Nats Chat Podcast. Uh, you can use a shout out to brag about your son or daughter doing well in a Little League game. It's whatever you want, but you can email us to find out more again, Podcast at gmail.com. But Mark, before we get to the learners, before we get to Strasburg, how about a happy topic? Exhibition games have begun and the consensus number two overall prospect for the Nats outfielder, James Wood, is killing it. Uh, this has been something. Two Grapefruit League games for the Nats so far. 7-4 loss to the Houston Astros in West Palm Beach on Saturday evening. 6-3 win over the Miami Marlins in Jupiter, Florida on Sunday afternoon. James Wood has homered in each game. He had an outfield assist in that second game. We're two games in. I get it. And there are others who have stood out. But Mark, James Wood, (laughs) two games into this exhibition season, is uh, taking his hype to a whole new level. And these weren't wall scrapers, Al. They were both absolutely demolished. The first one Saturday night off a right-hander reached the back of the berm in right center field in West Palm Beach. They didn't have the, the stat cast up for that game, so I couldn't tell you exactly what, but you know, way over 400 feet, probably the 420-430 range. And then on Sunday in Jupiter, off a lefty, off a breaking ball from a lefty, he drove it straight center field, 109 miles an hour off the bat and 422 feet to straight center field. Now, yes, two games, two spring training games at that. I have seen plenty of guys over the years who are spring training MVPs and then don't show you a whole lot when the bell actually rings. And this isn't to say that James Wood is all of a sudden in the opening day plans, but you could not ask for a better start, at least to his camp. Even before these games, he was turning heads. I think a lot of people with the organization look at him as maybe a step ahead of the other prospects in terms of how close to big league ready he might be. And what he's done here the first two days would suggest that he's doing everything he can to try to show them just how close he is. The video of that homer from the game on Saturday evening was so cool to see. And to see him do that from the get-go like that, his first swing in an exhibition game this Grapefruit League season really was something. That moonshot homer like you described, a two-out first pitch solo homer to right and a two-run fifth for the Nats. And then in the game on Sunday afternoon, another two-run fifth for the Nats, a two-run homer on a one-two pitch. And like I said, Wood in that game had an outfield assist. Now, like I said, there are others who are standing out here. Another top Nats prospect, outfielder Robert Hassel III, did not have a very good 2023 season, but he really seems poised to have a bounce-back 2024 season. He, in each game, has come off the bench to play left field. He, over the two games, a combined three for five with a triple and two singles, uh, also has a stolen base. That adds a top prospect, outfielder Dylan Cruz. He, in each game, has come off the bench to play center field. Uh, 0 for 3, but has drawn two walks, made a diving catch in the loss on Saturday evening. And some of the young pitchers have stood out. Uh, Jackson Rutledge, a starter, pitching in relief on Saturday evening. Two scoreless innings. And Mackenzie Gore, a starter who started the win on Sunday afternoon. One run in two innings, four strikeouts versus no walks. I know there have been some rough individual performances, and we can get to those. But, you know, two days into this, man, James Wood, Robert Hassel, Dylan Cruz, Jackson Rutledge, Mackenzie Gore, A nice, uplifting first few days of this exhibition season for the Nets. You know, it's funny, Al, from my perspective as a reporter, when you watch and cover these spring training games, there's a 
usually a pattern to how these go and where your interests lie. Typically, you're going to be paying your most attention to the first four or five innings when all the starters are in the game. And then the interest might wane a little bit over the second half of the game as the backups and the minor leaguers come in. And so far in these two games, I'm realizing, no, there's more to watch in the latter half of these games. And that may continue to be the storyline here for a while because that's when the kids are coming in. And for the first time in a long time, the kids are more interesting than the big leaguers on the Nationals. So it's been a lot of fun to see that so far. Hassel, I think kind of the forgotten prospect of the group, don't give up on him. He admitted to us that that wrist injury that he suffered way back in the fall league of 2022, that it probably was still hampering him last year and may have had something to do with his poor numbers. He's looked really good, really on the ball. The triple that he hit the other night, driving a ball to left center field, that's what his game is. That was a really good sign to see that. Jackson Rutledge was outstanding and really efficient in his two innings the other night. And Dylan Cruz, I know you know, hasn't really broken through with that big moment yet, but watching his at-bats, and you saw it on the two walks, this guy will work in that bat like anybody and is not going to give anything away. And you know, it's very early. There's a whole lot still to see. But I remember thinking this at the time of the draft and, and just the little bit that I've seen here so far, both in terms of his physical stature and the way he plays the game, it reminds me of Anthony Rendon in that this is a guy who doesn't look physically imposing, certainly not the way that you know James Wood towers over you, but he's a really good athlete, plays the game really hard, does everything right, gives you quality at-bats all the time, plays a solid defense in the field. A long way to go, but it's hard not to like what you see so far. Yes. Well, probably not the week to be comping <laughs> a Nats prospect to Anthony Rendon, but I get what you're saying. Well, Yes. Washington Nationals version of Anthony Rendon with a better personality and much more pleasant with the media, I will say. Dylan Cruz has been excellent with us so far. The uh, stock of Anthony Rendon has plummeted in uh, recent days. Well, look, I think we all understand that it is far more unlikely than likely that a James Wood or a Dylan Cruz uh, especially would start the 2024 regular season at the major league level. There are developmental reasons. There are service time reasons. But do you think it is at all on the table that a Wood or a Cruz could begin the regular season at the major league level? Not that it's likely, but that Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez are at least open to that. Like if James Wood does kill it this exhibition season, can he play his way onto the opening day major league roster or is that not a true possibility? So everything that I understand about the situation is that they are not in the team's plans for opening day at this point. There's been a lot of talk around camp of, yeah, we know these guys are coming, but boy, we got to stay patient. You can't just force that move. You can't call them up before they are truly ready. You can't make the move for the wrong reason. You can't do it because you're trying to get attention or to appease the fan base or to show that you are trying to win more than maybe it appears that you are. So there's going to be a lot of caution and patience that has to be shown there for everyone. Now, having said that, Mike Rizzo has always said this, and I think it's been true at times, is that the players will tell you when they're ready. It's possible for them to tell them that they're ready with their performance in spring training. It would have to be out of this world, consistent, and not just the results. It's not just about hitting home runs, but about the way they carry themselves, the kind of quality at bats they have, and just how they appear to be you know, among the other players. 
they look and feel and act like big leaguers, like they understand what's all involved in that. So you never say never, but I think we have to be careful not to get too excited about this. They're coming. The time will come. Don't worry. I, I just I go back. It's not exactly comparable apples to apples, but Bryce Harper and Steven Strasburg both had great springs. And you got to the end of the camp and you said to yourself, are they one of the 25 best players on the team? Yeah. And that may happen this year with Wood and Cruz and maybe somebody else. But there are valid reasons to have them at least start the year in the minor leagues. Neither has been to AAA yet. You do want to make sure they have some success at each level. There are service time reasons, although there is extra motivation built in now to put a guy on the opening day roster. You can be rewarded for that if he ends up you know, getting rookie of the year votes. But I think it would have to pick a pretty extraordinary set of circumstances for any of those guys to actually come north and be on the opening day roster. I mentioned that it hasn't been all good for the Nats over these first two exhibition games. And of course, it's not going to be all good. But like, for instance, Patrick Corbin uh, was the Nats starting pitcher on Saturday evening. He struggled two runs and one in two thirds innings. But I did want to ask you about this. So Kbert Ruiz, he's coming off a really rough defensive season last season. He in that game on Saturday evening, I mean, this is one of these things where it's like, geez, could you start off maybe a little better than this? Two catcher interference errors, and he got charged with a passed ball. I don't want to preach panic off one exhibition game for Kbert like that, and it may well be that he was working on some things, but boy, off the rough defensive campaign that he had last year to in his first exhibition game this Grapefruit League season to have two catcher interference errors and a passed ball not ideal. Yeah. All right. So here's what's going on with that. And, and we've been talking to him about this throughout the spring, even before the games began. They are, and he's trying to make some real changes to the way that he positions himself to receive pitches. The idea being, everybody knows and he acknowledges he was not good at framing strikes last year, especially pitches at the bottom of the strike zone. So the two things that he's trying to do, and I think others with the Nats catching core are, are trying to do some similar things as well. Number one, to get down on one knee often as he's receiving a pitch. Instead of being up on your tiptoes with both knees up in the air, one knee down that allows you to set up lower, give a, a little better view for the umpire of catching a pitch right at the knees. Number two, and it goes along the same lines, is positioning yourself a little bit closer to the plate, the idea being there, catch the ball before it has a chance to drop below the strike zone, help make it look more like uh, you caught a strike. Now, the danger with that, as we saw in the game the other night, is that twice the batter made contact with his glove, and that's catcher's interference. You can't do that. It's something he's going to have to figure out, find that balance between which hitters can I creep a little bit closer on, which ones do I need to be further back on. We don't have all the stack cast to be able to, to see the metrics of this, but the initial report from the team was that they felt like he did get them a couple of strike calls that maybe he wouldn't have in the past because of his positioning. So there is a pro and a con to doing this. They want him to keep working on this, but also recognize who the hitter is, where to position himself for that specific situation. This is what spring training is for. This is still happening. Come April, it's a problem. For now, I think they're willing to take the chance on it in the hope that he will figure it all out and ultimately pay dividends for them on the defensive side. 
Uh, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the Nats signing Kbert Ruiz to that uh, contract extension. March 11th was when the Nats announced that uh, eight-year extension with two club options. Uh, the first eight seasons of the extension reportedly at $50 million. So he clearly is the Nats catcher, you know, at least for now. I mean, it would take a lot, I think, for them to move off him as their primary catcher. And like we said, last season, really rough defensive season, did do some good things offensively. And there's no doubt. I mean, Spring training games, exhibition games are for experimentation and trying new things. So we're not going to go nuts over what happened on Saturday evening. But yeah, you would not have scripted his uh, 2024 exhibition debut uh, to go quite like that. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation, which is offering a great deal to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast for this final week of February 50% off all styles of windows, plus an additional 10% off through the end of February, and zero down payment, zero payments, and zero interest for 24 months. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Upgrade the look, feel, and value of your home with great new windows from Window Nation, which can install your new windows in a day or less, and Window Nation windows come with a lifetime warranty. If you have been thinking about getting new windows, now is the time. Take advantage of this great deal being offered to listeners of the Nat Chat podcast. 50% off all styles of windows, plus an additional 10% off through the end of February, and zero down payment, zero payments, and zero interest for 24 months. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Left-handed batter, first pitch. The next pitch is rope to right field, a line shot. That'll fall in in front of Avisil Garcia. And so Robert Hassel has three line drive hits in four at-bats this spring. That was a rocket. So Hassel off to a flying start here in Grapefruit League play. It is hard to talk about the Nats right now and not at least reference what broke this past Monday afternoon. And this is by far the single biggest news item to emerge from National Spring Training so far because it has to do with the ownership of the club. The news from this past Monday afternoon that the learners are no longer exploring selling the Nats. Uh, Said Nats managing principal owner Mark Lerner to the Washington Post, quote, nothing has really changed. We've just decided that it's not the time or the place to sell the team. We're very happy owning the team and bringing us back a ring one day End quote. And thus ends a near two year saga that has to go down as one of the more bizarre (laughs) two year sagas or near two year sagas that we've had in Washington, D.C. sports. It was on April 11th, 2022, that we learned that the learners had begun exploring selling the Nats. But as best as we can tell, the learners never came close to selling the Nats as the learners never got what they wanted for the Nats. Now, We have talked about this saga as it has gone on. There very much is a feeling that not all of the learners were on the same page here. I think that has become very clear. I don't think it is at all coincidence that we have this announcement of an agreement of the sale of the Orioles at a uh, rather low price, at least in the eyes, I think, of a lot of people at $1.725 billion. And then all of a sudden, the learners are no longer exploring selling the Nats. I would ask you this, though, to get us going. Are the learners not exploring selling the Nats for now, or are they truly no longer exploring selling the Nats? Like, do you think we could be back to dancing this dance in, you know, two years or even a year? Or do you think, no, like moving forward now, the learners are owning the Nats and there's not much to say beyond that? It is an excellent question, Al, and one among many that I and other reporters would love to broach with Mark Lerner. And unfortunately, he chose to put this news out there in a very brief conversation with the Post uh, and not take questions either from Andrew Golden or give the rest of us an opportunity to ask him questions. I asked for an interview or at least a statement and was told that uh, he wasn't going to be saying anything else about this. So there's a whole lot of other questions, follow-up questions to this that everybody would love to know the answer to, and we don't know the answer to them yet. Here's what I would say. The announcement, if you want to call it that, while it caught pretty much everyone, including people who work for the team, off guard, they didn't know that necessarily was coming. It was not really a surprise in terms of what the actual announcement was, the substance of it. I think anybody who's been paying attention to this, including the two of us as we followed it so closely, has really sensed for about the last year or so that nothing was happening on this front. And there wasn't a whole lot of reason to think that anything was going to change anytime soon in this regard. I think in that first year, you figured they were 
talking to potential owners out there, taking bids, offering up their financial details, kind of seeing what the market was for the franchise. And after a year of it, it was pretty clear that there was only one serious bidder, and that was Ted Leonsis, and he was not going to make them the kind of offer they were looking for, said they wanted well north of $2 billion. And that wasn't going to happen under the current circumstances. And so we know the learners weren't just going to sell the team for the sake of it. They were only going to do it if they found the right price and the right owner. It didn't happen. And really over the last year, I didn't sense that there was a whole lot of active shopping around looking for somebody else to bid on it. And so you get to this point now and you say, I think they've known it for a while. I think Mark just decided it was time to make this public to let their fans know, to let other teams know, to let free agents and other players in the sport know what's going on. Because I think the number one complaint from most people over the last year is, are you in or are you out? What What is it? What's the situation? Well, he now says they're in and the proof will be in the pudding as far as how they proceed. Far be it from me to lecture Mark Lerner on how to do his life. But when I read in your piece on MassInSports.com about this, that you had requested to talk to Mark Lerner and he would not talk to you or to anyone else, and he just gave that brief statement to the Post, I, <laughs> I had to shake my head. I, I mean, like you just said, are you in or are you out? Well, if you're in, if you're not selling the team, you can't give the reporters who cover the Nats five minutes just to say, hey, here's where we're at. Here's why we're doing what we're doing. And let's have a great 2024 season. I mean, you continue down this path of basically never speaking publicly, never addressing the situation. I don't get that. I don't think it's smart from a business standpoint. I think it turns people off. I think it turns fans off. I mean, a lot of fans are not happy that the learners are keeping the team, but at least if you as the managing principal owner speak and convey a message to fans, you know, maybe that can win some people over. I really did not like that. And I really hope at some point this season, Mark Lerner does do an interview with someone or speaks at some point and just gives the Nats fan some reason for faith and hope and confidence here. I I think the fan base could use that. I think the fan base deserves that. I mean, no one's asking him to do weekly pressers, but geez, when something big like this comes out, we're no longer exploring selling the team. You can't give reporters even five minutes. You don't have to do some 30-minute session. But uh, geez, I, I found that to be very disappointing that he wouldn't talk to you guys. Yeah, you and me both, Alan. And and look, Mark Lerner's a very nice individual. I have spoken to him here at spring training. He, he's not given me the cold shoulder or anybody else. He's very friendly and and in a casual setting, uh, happy to say hi and ask how you're doing and, and chat about stuff. Uh, but when it comes to on the record actual interviews, he's very reluctant to do it, as we've seen. I think what's strange to me about this particular situation is clearly he and the entire ownership group wanted this out there in the public. This wasn't like it was just dug up and they had to reluctantly acknowledge it. They wanted, as I said, I think their fan base, the baseball world in general to know that they are committed to continuing to own the team. Well, if you're going to do that, why not spread that to as many different outlets as possible If it wasn't in the form of an interview because you're worried about what questions we might ask and putting you on the spot, you can put out a formal statement. I mean, he has many times over the last few years, you know, published a a, like a letter to the fans on the team website discussing a variety of subjects. That would have been a perfectly acceptable forum, I think, to make some of these statements. And I think the most telling thing to me about all this is that 
you know, and I, and I, I checked for this. There was no national, not nationals, but national MLB reporter, all the big names that we know, none of them picked up on the story and did anything with it. There was no follow-up. There was no trying to make more sense of it or, or talk to other people around the game. What does this mean? It was kind of an afterthought around the rest of the baseball world. And I get that there's no actual news. They're just saying, we're going to continue owning the team. We're not trying to sell them anymore. But I don't care what franchise you are, whether you're the New York Yankees or the Miami Marlins or somewhere in between, that kind of news is a big deal or should be a big deal around the entire baseball world. And this one, it was crickets. And I don't know if got to believe at least some of that was the method in which uh, they chose to put it out there. I think there's so much to think about with this. Like I said, I mean, I think the sell price thing was a big thing. We had that report from the Washington Post last April 19th that Ted Leonsis late in 2022, quote, offered more than $2 billion, end quote, to buy the Nats. The report said it wasn't clear whether the learners rejected the offer or simply did not respond to it. But what, of course, is clear is that the learners did not accept that offer. And when the Orioles go now for $1.725 billion, I mean, that does make you say to yourself, geez, you're the learners. You're not going to accept $2 billion plus for the Nats. The O's go for $1.725. What exactly are you looking for here? I mean, for those who don't know this, the record sale price for an MLB team is $2.4 billion for the New York Mets in 2020. The Mets are worth more than the Nats are worth. New York is a more lucrative market than Washington, D.C. is, even though D.C. is plenty lucrative. But if the record is 2.4 and you're turning down $2 billion plus, let's call it $2.1 billion from Ted late in 2022, you know, you do say to yourself, like, what exactly do you want here? And so, that brings me to, did you really want to sell the team? I mean, if you're turning down what seems like a more than fair offer, did you really want to sell the team? And we've talked about this, how you know perhaps Mark Lerner felt one way, but other members of the ownership group felt another way. There are six principal owners of the Nats in addition to the managing principal owner, Mark Lerner. Those six principal owners are Annette M. Lerner, Marla Lerner-Tannenbaum, Deborah Lerner-Cohen, Robert K. Tannenbaum, Edward L. Cohen, and Judy Lenkin-Lerner. Where they stood in this, what they thought about this, I think would be really interesting. And I don't expect us to know that anytime soon. But yeah, I think the inner workings here would be fascinating. Who was on what side? And was it maybe that Mark Lerner set an unattainable sale price so that the team did not get sold during this saga? Yeah, it's entirely possible that that's part of the equation. Let's also remember that at the time that they started this up two years ago, Ted Lerner was still alive and part of the equation as well in the ownership group. And though he wasn't you know, he had handed over the day-to-day -day control to Mark. He was still very much involved in any of these kind of big decisions. And I don't know if it was his wish to sell the team at the time and, and his death maybe changed the dynamics in some way. I've always gotten the sense, though, that Mark Lerner enjoys owning the Nationals, wants to continue to own the Nationals. I would be surprised if he was the the lead voice all along in trying to sell it. I think it's much more likely that he's been the lead voice in trying to keep them. As far as the, the sale price goes, I get what you're saying when you say, well, they're clearly not worth as, as much as the Mets. And I, I agree with you on that. But I think maybe deep down, they felt like the market for these things always goes up. So it's kind of like free agents. Like 
you may have a lesser player than the guy who signed a couple of years ago, but you're going to get a better deal because the bar has now been set at 2.4 million. I think the biggest issue, and it would be fascinating to know, we'll never know this, but it would be fascinating to know if they put the team up for sale in January of 2020, coming off the World Series and pre-pandemic and all that, what could they have gotten for them? I think maybe it would have been more along the lines of what they ultimately were asking for. And I think part of the problem here is that they were asking for 2019 prices in 2022 and 23. That wasn't going to happen. So now, if ultimately they do still have some desire to sell the team down the road, how do you get to that number that you want? Well, I think it's pretty clear. You've got to put a better product out there. You've got to get more fans in, generate more interest to generate more revenue for your team. I think that's the way to go about it. Now, I'm not saying that that's what they're trying to do to ultimately sell the team here, but one way or the other, we're past this point now. We know how they've operated the last few years. Now it's time to start putting your money where your mouth is and show everyone that you are committed, not just in your words, but in your actions to building a winning franchise again. Yeah, and invest in infrastructure. I, I think that's a big thing. I know there has been a lot of focus on the lack of spending on players like we've talked about. I think with where the Nats are in the rebuild, there actually is a compelling argument for not spending heavily on players right now. But when it comes to infrastructure, there are no more excuses here. This team should be beefing up its infrastructure in terms of front office personnel, in terms of access to analytics, et cetera, if the learners are in. Again, if you're in, then you need to be in. And at the very least, uh, they can be investing more into beefing up Nats baseball operations to make it what it should be, which is state of the art. I mean, that should be the goal of every MLB team. And the Nats, uh, as best as we can tell, are far from being a state of the art front office in terms of not so much the quality of people in it, but the number of people. People and uh, the tools that are available to these people. You know what's interesting with the value of the Nats? So we are used to franchise values going up. And yet Forbes in March 2022 and March 2023 valued the Nats at exactly the same price, $2 billion. The Nats per Forbes did not increase in value from 2022 to 2023. Now, we are, of course, approaching March 2024. I'm assuming Forbes will be coming out with its latest list of franchise values in MLB. I'm very interested to see what the Nats franchise value is. But I think there's, a, you know, we think of like NFL teams and they seemingly go up by like 15, 20 percent every year now. It's a little different in these other sports. And the Nats did not go up at all from 2022 to 2023. So I am curious to see where they are, uh, assuming that another Forbes list is coming. One other point I'd make also, you talk about the importance of building up the infrastructure in the front office. Agree 100%. I think they also need to be focused on building up the fan experience in the ballpark. Renovations, I know they've been doing some of those. Making the ballpark a more enjoyable place to be to try to entice more fans to come, you know, reward the people who've stuck with them here through these lean years. And don't just wait until the team gets good again. Start that process now. They've always had their hardcore fans. You're all of us who listen to us. We know you're there thick and thin, but they were getting the casual fans in 2019 who followed them because of the World Series and fell in love with them. How many of those fans have they kind of lost the last few years? You got to work to get them back. I think there's a lot of things that can be done and it includes financial investment to try to improve that part of the experience. And it's not just about what you're spending on players and front office workers. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Okay. Swing and a miss. And down goes Mancini. The big cut in it. Big breaking ball. Four strikeouts for Gore. Well, this episode of the Nats Chat Podcast is from Monday, February 26th. Saturday was February 24th, known in some circles as Stephen Strasburg D-Day. February 24th, per the collective bargaining agreement between Major League Baseball and the MLB Players Association, was the mandatory reporting date for all players invited to a team's Major League Spring Training. Those players who did not report by February 24th without club permission were subject to club discipline, are subject to club discipline. Well, still having not reported to national spring training in West Palm Beach is starting pitcher Steven Strasburg as the situation with his contract remains unresolved. Now, we all know the deal. His playing career is over. Nobody is denying this at this point. But we do know that the Nats do want Strasburg attending spring training to, at the very least, help out Nats pitchers. Mike Rizzo himself has made this clear in a session with Mark and others on February 14th, uh, said Mike Rizzo, quote, yeah, he's invited like every other guy on our 40-man roster. He's got until February 24th to be here. And yeah, I expect him to be here, end quote. But Steven Strasburg still has not shown up. And that uh, deadline day of Saturday has come and gone. Now, this was not a big deal over the weekend. I was a little surprised that like more of this was not made. What happened here? I mean, Strasburg isn't there. We know that. Is anything going to happen off him not showing up at spring training? Not that I can tell, at least not at this point. I, I know Rizzo you know, told us I expect him to be there. I'm not sure deep down that he or anybody else with the organization actually expected Steven Strasburg to show up. I know I sure didn't expect to see that happen. And while I suppose you know, by the letter of the law, they are at least able to consider some kind of discipline for him because he did not report on time. I've gotten no sense that that is something they are planning to do here imminently. Maybe over time, it's something they would explore. But I think it was kind of an idle threat and not sure anybody truly expected anything to come of it. Let's remember, you know, a year ago, he didn't report to spring training. He was, quote unquote, rehabbing back at home in a way that he probably is no longer doing either. But it's not like they disciplined him last year for that. And so I just, I don't think it accomplishes the team anything to try to push this any further in that regard, to try to say, well, you're in violation of your contract and therefore we're not going to pay you or we're going to dock you pay or whatever the ramifications are. I'm sorry if people out there were expecting something big on Saturday. I honestly was not. I know Rizzo said that day. Uh, it is officially the reporting date, but I never got the sense that we were truly headed for some kind of monumental moment You know, as soon as he didn't arrive on the reporting date. So where is this going at least this season? I mean, if the team in Strasbourg do not resolve this contract issue before the regular season, are the Nats just going to park Strasbourg on the 60-day injured list again and that's it and we'll just do what we did last season? 
Yeah, I think that's probably what happens. They are allowed to put them on the 60-day IL now. The league allows it during spring training, but you can only do that if your 40-man roster is full. So if they were to sign a major league free agent, which I don't expect them to do, but if they would, they could do that. And then the corresponding move to clear a spot could be placing Strasburg on the 60-day IL. Otherwise, I assume they will wait until uh, the end of camp when they have a non-roster player who makes the team and they need to clear a spot for that reason. And I think he'll probably spend the year on the 60-day IL unless there's some kind of negotiation between the two sides um, that changes it. But I feel like they've been in the standoff for so long now, I don't know why that would change. And they're just going to end up proceeding as uh, they have been where they're using up a spot on them in the offseason, but then they put them on the 60-day during the season and we just kind of wait for this whole thing to drag out. Three more years of this, unfortunately. <laughs> this really is unbelievable. I mean, if the Nats were a good team, this would be such a bigger deal that a, a roster spot is being wasted on a guy whose career is over and everyone knows it. I mean, you know, I think about this and, and we've talked about this, but the money is guaranteed. Three years left on this 70-year, $245 million contract to which Strasburg was re-signed in December 2019. Unless there is some sort of way that the learners can finagle their way out of paying that money due to injury or Strasburg no-showing, it certainly would seem like the leverage is in Strasburg's camp in that, you know, the money again is guaranteed. But, you know, I, I do come back to this. I mentioned this on the last installment of the podcast. I mean, I don't think that it's unreasonable to say, hey, Strauss, we know you're done pitching, but we are paying you. You know, we value your baseball acumen. A lot of pitchers here look up to you. Would it kill you to come to spring training and just offer some advice? I think a wild card in this is this issue of this nerve damage that he suffered. The Washington Post last June 3rd reported that Strasburg was dealing with, quote, severe nerve damage, end quote. So, you know, is his physical health such that he doesn't want to be out in public, that it is a struggle for him to be in public? We don't know. So, you know, I do want to at least acknowledge that possibility. But on the surface... I don't see why it is unreasonable to say, as we pay you these many millions of dollars, can you at least come to camp and be a good teammate and try to help out, especially some of these young pitchers that we have? I don't see why that's unreasonable. No, I agree. I think it is reasonable under normal circumstances. I think it is absolutely reasonable. Even if he was officially retired and every, there was no question about the money, I think it's reasonable to say, just like Ryan Zimmerman does, hey, come on down here for a week and help the kids out and you know, use your knowledge to help make this team that you played for better. The problem, as you kind of point out, number one, we really don't know what kind of physical shape he's in. And if it's something that would make it difficult for him to do what we would assume would be very simple daily activities, I don't know if that is a problem. But even beyond that, the moment he shows up down here, he's in the public eye. We're all here. We're all going to want to ask him how this process is going. And he's not going to want to answer it, even if he wasn't Steven Strasburg, who doesn't like talking to us in the first place, if there really is potential for some kind of legal battle here over the rest of his remaining salary, he's not going to be able to say anything. And so it just creates such an awkward situation. And that, I think, more than anything, is why he's not down here. Everything I gather is that he feels bad about all of this, that he never wanted to put the team in this position, that he would like to be a mentor and help others out. But the situation that's been created has created an extremely awkward relationship between him and the organization, so much so that I don't know that he can be in public with them. And here's the other thing, like at the end of April, 
they're holding a five-year World Series anniversary celebration when they face the Astros. And I've been told they're bringing back a lot of players from the team. Could Steven Strasburg attend that? I don't see how he could under the current circumstances. It would overwhelm the rest of that weekend, which is the last thing he wants to do. And so you're going to have this celebration of the greatest team the Nationals have ever had and all these great players coming back. And the guy who won the MVP for you in that World Series isn't even going to be there in all likelihood. It's such a bad situation all around. That is why, to me, the play is to get the initial awkwardness out of the way now. Like, I think there's value in have them come to camp now, talk to you guys now, get that done and over with, and then it won't be so awkward if he comes to that five-year World Series championship reunion. This really is a shame. And this never had to be like this. Even with as bad as things have gone with that Strasburg contract, for it to be in this place at this time, after all of this time, is uh, is really unfortunate. And uh, it's amazing <laughs> that we're still talking about this. But of course, we are. You know, you mentioned Ryan Zimmerman. So Zim was at Nats camp this past week. Ryan Zimmerman has an official role with the Nationals. His title is, quote, Special Advisor for Baseball and Business Operations, end quote. A lot of words that, of course, is a vague job title, vague, you know, I would guess on purpose because it sort of says, hey, you're an all-purpose guy for us. You can do a lot of different things for us. But, you know, I had this thought about Ryan Zimmerman. I'm interested in your take on this. With all of the things that he's doing with the organization and he's gaining experience coaching guys up, sounds like this coming season he wants to gain some experience when it comes to the front office of the Nats. Do you think that Ryan Zimmerman is the next manager of the Nats? We know how it goes now with managers in MLB. They're not these like lifetime coaches who finally get elevated to the job of manager. Some guys are, but for the most part now, or at least in large part now, you see a lot of recently retired players, not necessarily with any significant coaching experience, being given the job of manager. Davey Martinez just got an extension. We know that. So it's not like, you know, we're pushing him out the door, but we also know how things can go. You know, if the Nats don't do well this year and maybe don't do well next year, Davey could be out. Heck, if the Nats don't do well this year, I guess it's possible that Davey is out. But whatever the case, even if Davey is here for another three, four years, do you see Ryan Zimmerman potentially being Nats manager as a real possibility? Or do you think his future would be more in the front office? Or do you think his future is more just this role of you can kind of do whatever you want, whenever you want? Wow, that is a loaded question, if ever there was one. And just to give people behind the scenes a little bit of a look at, at this, you know, we talked before the show about some of the topics we want to address, but we don't run through the whole thing. And every once in a while, you throw me a curveball. And this was a big Levon Hernandez 59 mile an hour curveball. You just threw me to see if I would take a whack at it. Uh, here's what I would say to that, because it's not something I've asked him or even considered up until this moment. But in my immediate thought, it actually reminds me so much of the guy who Ryan Zerman grew up idolizing and emulating, and that's Cal Ripken. And for years, there was always this question of, does Cal want to manage? Because he was such a smart player and always so involved and loved coaching kids. And whether it was the Orioles or even at one point, the Nationals, when they had openings, would Cal Ripken ever want to manage? And knowing him a little bit, because I covered the end of his career, the sense I always got was that, no, that's not really what he wants to do, that he, number one, isn't interested in the 162-game grind, certainly not while he still has kids who you know are, are young and live at home. But number two, kind of has larger thoughts than any of that, wants to be more involved on a grander scale than just managing a team. 
day to day. And I think Zimmerman would fall into that same category. I don't think, certainly not at this point, he's interested in being at the ballpark every day. He said it was kind of a big deal that he was able to come down here for a full week without his family. Usually they come along with him for a pseudo vacation. The kids are old, uh, sort of old enough now that he can leave them at home for a week and get away with that and just focus on baseball, but he wasn't going to be down here all spring. That plus what he was telling us about his interest right now, in addition to the coaching stuff, he is really interested in sitting in on front office meetings and learning more about that side of it, which he said he really has never known or understood. I think he's also interested in how ownership operates, not necessarily saying that he wants to be an owner, but he talked really passionately about one thing he would love to see for this organization and something he thinks he can help with is better connecting ownership with players and helping communicate to owners what players are, what they want and what could be appealing to try to help convince players to want to sign here long term and then vice versa to be able to help convey to players what owners go through and what their priorities are. You know, he has a connection with Mark Lerner that other players, hardly any other player is ever going to have. And so I thought all that was fascinating and said to me, like, this is a guy who does want to be more involved, but I think it's on that grander scale. I don't see it as a, I want to be in the dugout 162 games a year managing them. You never say never, but I think like Cal Ripken, that sounds appealing, but when you really think about it and know who the person is, I don't think that's really what he desires to do. Yeah. And Cal now, of course, is a part of this uh, incoming new ownership group for the Orioles. You know, it's amazing what Davey Martinez hired as Nats manager in October 2017. He now is by far the dean of Washington, D.C. head coaches slash managers. Like nobody comes close to him in terms of like the big pro sports teams in this area, right? I mean, the Commanders have a new head coach in Dan Quinn. The Wizards just fired their head coach, Wes Unsell Jr. Their interim guy is Brian Keefe. The Capitals have uh, a first-year head coach in Spencer Carberry. DC United just recently made a coaching change. I mean, you drill down to college, like Georgetown has Ed Cooley in his first season as Hoyas head coach. Kevin Willard is in just his second season as Maryland head coach. Davey is like the grapebeard in terms of DC area head coaches slash managers. And growing on the list of tenured major league managers, it's kind of quietly happened because it's been a lot of these short-term deals. You know, it was never a super long extension that guaranteed he was going to be here long-term, but he's been through it and and it'll be fascinating. I, you know, we're not there yet, but with both Davey and with Mike Rizzo for that matter, if they do actually see this thing through and guide another team to the playoffs again at some point, how many GM and manager combinations get the opportunity to win a championship, tear it all down, and then compete for another championship again with a totally new roster of players? It doesn't happen a lot in the world of sports. And again, they're not there yet. They got a ways to go. But if it does come through and they're leading a winning team that makes the playoffs again, that's pretty rare company actually to have the ability to do that. It's Borderline unprecedented, especially in modern times, right? I mean, usually the way it is, is once the team gets bad, you have the house cleaning and then a new regime comes in. And in this case, because the team got bad so soon after winning a championship, 
because you had the ownership uncertainty for multiple years, Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez stayed on board. And it's such a unique circumstance. There's no question uh, about that. Well, you tell us what you think. Hit us up on X at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We invite you to check out our website, NatsChatPodcast.com, at which you can buy a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. And we appreciate the support very much. Uh, All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Check out his site, TimNewmark.com. So for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you now with a terrific conversation our guy Tim Shovers had with author Gary Sarnoff about a book that Gary wrote. Team of Destiny, Walter Johnson, Clark Griffith, Bucky Harris, and the 1924 Washington Senators, a truly special team. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. In the summer of 1924, Washington, D.C. found itself uncharacteristically united behind the shocking rise of its hometown team, the Washington Senators. The Capitol was home to many great things, but the Senators weren't one of them. In fact, they only had six winning seasons in their first 23 years. As the saying went, Washington was first in war, first in peace, and last in the American League. During your research about this, what jumped out the most to you about this? I think the hiring of Bucky Harris, it was just so unexpected. He was so young and he was shocked when he was offered the job. Uh, But just not only the hiring of Bucky Harris, but just the whole episode in trying to uh, hire a manager. Clark Griffith, the team co-owner and team president, was in search for a new manager after the 1923 season. And he had a few candidates in mind, but of those those candidates, he either couldn't swing a deal for a player he wanted to be the player manager, or he was turned down. He offered the job to others, but they turned him down. So I think that whole episode leading to the hiring of Bucky Harris really jumped out to me. One thing you wrote about that really jumped out to me about the World Series when they were playing the Giants was that among those in the press corps for the 1924 World Series, Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb, what were their roles during the World Series? And George Sisler was another Hall of Famer who was part of the press corps. Uh, back then, they would get star players like Cobb or Ruth who, who were not playing in the World Series. Their role was to uh, write to, uh, to write for a syndicated newspaper column. They would write about the World Series, report about the World Series, and of course, you know, they had an editor, you know, they, they'd do the writing, they'd do their own writing, but then an editor would, you know, work on it and, and put it in the newspapers from coast to coast. But, you know, that was common in those days where uh, baseball players would attend the World Series as newspapers syndicate reporters. Wow. So they weren't talking heads. You're saying Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb would write something after the game, like another scribe. They would write, Yes. They would write what their observation was of the baseball game, of each World Series game. You address this early on in the book, but explain for people who might come across random archived articles or coverage of the Senators. Sometimes they're referred to as the Senators. Sometimes they're referred to as the Nats or the Nationals. And so for people who are wondering, wait, I thought the Washington Nationals didn't exist till 2005. What is the explanation of that? The Washington Senators were a National League team in the 1890s. 
They were owned by the Wagner brothers, and the Wagner brothers were unpopular because anytime a player got good, they'd sell the player off, and the team would continue to lose. After the 1899 season, the National League contracted from 12 to 8 teams. They cut four teams. One of the four was the Washington Senators. Well, that opened the door for the American League to come into existence and also opened the door for a new Washington baseball team. So in 1901, Washington came back into Major League Baseball as the Senators of the American League. They're the Washington Senators. They continued to lose for four seasons. They were awful from 1901 through 1904. So people thought, well, wait a minute. You know, the reason why they're losing has to be the name. It has to be the Senators. The Senators means the Wagner brothers losing baseball. We've got to do something about the name. So before the 1905 season, they changed their name and their colors. They changed the team name to the uh, Nationals. So they're now the, officially the Washington Nationals. However, some writers and fans were like, no, 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 we're the Senators. We can't adjust to this. So they were actually the Washington Nationals. That was their official name. But the two names were used interchangeably, mostly the Senators. Most people refer to them as the Senators. So that they were the Nationals until 19. 56, because after the 1955 season, Clark Griffith died. Calvin Griffith inherited the team, and he changed the name back to the Senators. So now they were the Senators from the mid to late 50s. And then when the new Senators came into existence in expansion in 1961, the new Washington team took the name Senators. Now we have the Nationals. Game one of the World Series at Griffith Stadium had the highest crowd ever in D.C. history, over 35,000. But what struck me about that was then when you wrote when the series shifted to the polo grounds, it was about 47, 48,000. So put that into context for the time. Was D.C. on the lower end for a World Series attendance or was just New York, New York? A little of both. I mean, New York was New York for sure. I mean, they had big ballparks, the polo grounds and Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium was huge. For D.C., uh, they increased the attendance because back then Griffith Stadium held less than 30,000. So they added seats for the World Series and um, they sold out their games. I I think all games sold out except for maybe game seven. But um, they, um, you know, sold out. So, you know, that for D.C., that was exceptional. What was the press coverage like on a day-to-day basis for the Senators locally in 1924? Well, you had a lot of Washington newspapers back then. You had at least four of them, probably more like six or maybe even as many as eight. And uh, yeah, they got a lot of press coverage, mostly because that was your main source for coverage because you didn't have television back then. Uh, You had radio, but it wasn't play-by-play. It was radio announcements and you had electronic scoreboards, but most people read the newspapers back then to follow the teams. Would you consider Game 7 of 1924 World Series one of the greatest World Series games ever played? Absolutely. Here you have a Game 7. The Senators were trailing 3-1. to one. They scored twice in the bottom of the eighth. Walter Johnson enters the game in the top of the ninth as a relief pitcher and pitches four shutout innings. He, had, he allowed base runners in all four innings that he pitched. So absolutely one of the most exciting, best games in Major League Baseball history, without a doubt. Well, we got a lot of diehard baseball fans, obviously, listening to this podcast, a lot who are very into history. So uh, as we close here, let people know, again, name of the book, where to find it, all the details. 
The book is Team of Destiny. It can be purchased on Amazon with the publisher Roman and Littlefield. And there are other outlets as well, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, and, and some others as well. So um, yeah, it's out there, it's available for purchase and it, it's being released today. Today is the first day it is being released. All right, Gary, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me on your show.